0: we are moving into a world that's becoming increasingly fractured, not just internationally, but also domestically as well. And this is especially true in the US. So we are entering the world where people kind of don't really share or agree on basic values and basic tenets. And that's internationally. For example, you see, you know, it's very important for for Russia to to have Ukraine to feel safe. And, you know, it's probably very important for China to, to have Taiwan to feel unified as well and internally in the U.S. you have very much contentious issues, you know, polarization is extreme and that actually opens the door to tremendous amounts of social disorder. So you have a system that's kind of breaking but it's not getting the enough information to fix itself so that further cements its role of, of fracturization.
1: Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders
2: A new world order is emerging, and in our Global Macro series, I, along with my co-host Jem Kazang want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent thought leaders to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world may look like. We want to explore their perspectives on a host of game-changing issues, and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. Our guest today, is a true insider when it comes to what goes on inside the Federal Reserve, as he spent five years of his career on the open market desk. The desk sits at the center of the dollar system as its ultimate and infinitive provider of dollars. It has access to virtually all regulatory and financial data, as well as open lines of communications with all major market participants. So please enjoy our conversation with Joseph Wang, AKA the Guy 12 Joseph, welcome and thank you so much for joining Jem and I today for what I'm sure will be a very insightful conversation as part of our global macro series. How are you doing? How are things where you are today?
0: I'm doing a little well. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm a huge fan of your podcast and I really appreciate being invited today.
2: Yeah, well, that's very kind of you to say. Thanks so much. Now, since this is your first time on our podcast, perhaps I could ask you to set the stage and provide a little bit of context for our conversation, um, by maybe sharing some of the highlights from your journey to where you are today, uh, which I think listeners will find very relevant for today's conversation and when we dive into lots of different topics uh, afterwards.
0: Sure. So I have a pretty unconventional background. I started my career as an attorney, So I I graduated and I worked in a large law firm for a little bit, but I realized that really, really wasn't what I wanted to do. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys know, but working as a lawyer, it's basically like writing term papers for the rest of your life. It's not what anyone really aspires to do. And so I got tired of chasing commas and I wanted to do something different. And I graduated in 2008 and at that time, what everyone was talking about was one, what central banking, and two, financial markets, and that was really attractive to me because, uh, first of all, I felt law was kind of artificial. Rather than finding some kind of objective truth or how that the system works, it was really kind of like you know making shaping outcomes the way you want it to be. So I was, I guess, more drawn to understanding how the world works and. Being able to understand, let's say, how the financial system works, how the markets work, seemed much more interesting and exciting to me. And that's kind of the field that I wanted to work in. At the time, it was really difficult to transition from, from law into, uh, into finance. So what I ended up doing um, after sending out too many resumes was uh, eventually I went back to school, um, got a degree in uh, financial economics, and then moved into the private sector. So I was a credit analyst for, for a little bit. And ultimately, I found my way onto the open markets desk at, at the New York Fed. So for those of you who don't know, the Fed actually has a trading desk. It's where they do their um, QE operations, their repo trades, their FX swap trades, and so forth. And it's a phenomenal learning opportunity for people who are interested in markets. Um, you can think of the Fed, well, I think of the trading desk, the desk, as they call it, as one of the centers of the global financial system. Um, the desk is basically the one of the ultimate and infinite providers of dollar liquidity to the entire world when for example in march when the treasury markets were breaking it was the desk that was doing say trillions of dollars in qe doing hundreds of billions of dollars in repo and hundreds of billions in fx swaps right so when you're at the desk you are you are one of the first people to hear about when something is breaking and you hear very loudly because they all call you and you are the you are one of the people who can do something about it so it's a it's a really good way to get an inside look at as to how the financial system works and it's been a it was a phenomenal op- learning opportunity so I was there for five years and eventually I decided that you know I, I'm really not learning anything here anymore so now um, I write a blog and I teach people about how the financial system works. I have books and I have online courses. And mostly I trade my own book. So that's what I do now.
2: Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Great journey. And by the way, I can appreciate your comments about a lawyer. My father was a lawyer or is a lawyer, you could say, and and my wife is as well. So I'm kind of uh, surrounded by it. Now... (laughs) um, I want to start out by asking you about your thoughts on a paper that was released as recently as on Friday. So I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it came from the Minneapolis Federal Reserve President, Neil Kashkari, and it was titled, Policy has tightened a lot. Is it enough? Um, So this is kind of two days after the Fed meeting ended. Now, My understanding is that Kashkari is, without a doubt, the most dovish of the members of the Fed, but after reading his paper personally, I think that you can take it a step further and say that he's also the most out of touch, perhaps. I don't know if you had a chance to read the paper, if you're familiar with it, but I want to give you a few quotes that I received from a friend who did, and I kind of love your reaction to it. So one of the quotes from the paper was, because the FOMC has strong credibility with market participants, they take our forward guidance seriously as they should. It goes on to say, just before the pandemic hit, the 10-year real rate was about 0%, and today it has returned to about 0%. And final quote I'm going to give you is, I believe monetary policy was roughly at a neutral stance shortly before the pandemic. Long-term real rates have now returned to roughly that level. What do you think when you hear someone like from the FOMC uh, talking like this at this time? You know.
0: So I, I have not read that paper, but you know when it talks when they talk about credibility of policy, there's a couple of ways you can look at this. And Chair Powell was asked about this at the press conference, too. One is whether they have enough credibility such that their tools work, and the other is whether they can actually achieve their outcome. Now, I think what usually they do is they defer to the former, that is to say, that when they say through forward guidance that they will raise rates and so forth, you immediately see that uh, priced into the market. So, in that sense, the market believes that they have the mechanism, the tools to actually enforce their forward guidance, and so that gets priced into the markets. Now, with respect to actually achieving their goal, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm skeptical about just looking purely on things like tips, or other market based measures, because um there's a lot of distortions in those things. One is that, you know, for example, what the Fed was doing QE in 2020, they were buying a disproportionate amount of tips. And that, according to studies from BIS, that was somewhat distorting the signals that you would get from real rates, right? So things, mechanical things like liquidity, they matter. And also, of course, there's things like passive investment. If you there's actually a very good presentation from um TBAC, the, the Treasury borrowing advisory a couple of years ago. shows that passive investing is becoming more involved in let's say these inflation protected securities and so that again those those are buying that is not about fundamental views but simply about flows in assets so when you talk about these market signals when it comes to real rates and so forth i i would be skeptical about, about that and also of course yields and things like that have never been very good predictors so i i don't think you could just look at as The paper appears to do look at market signals and make a judgment as to what the Fed's credibility in achieving their goals are. You can also look at it in another way, in that if you're looking at, let's say, the neutral rate as the Fed assumes to be, um, I think, half a percent or so forth. Now, that's something that's really that's a really difficult framework for me to use because this whole idea about the neutral rate assumes, in my view, too much about of uh, what drives things like growth and inflation. There are many things that drive it. For example, expected demand, or for example, changes in technology. To change, to, to think that pulling this one lever out of a machine that has you know hundreds of levers actually makes that big of a difference. I think that that um, th- that gives too much importance to, to what I understand is the only policy lever they have, um, but um, it is just one input out of many that determines the real economic conditions.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. I want to throw in one more question for you, and then I'm going to leave it to uh, to Jim to take over for, for a little while here. But just staying on the central bank policies around the world, um, I have this mental picture, at least, that in the beginning, like in 1980s and 1990s, as the globalization really got into gear, uh, that the major economies around the world became more and more synchronized, if I can call it like that. So when the U.S. were doing well, so was the rest of the world and vice versa, as opposed to the way it used to be, um, where you could have one part of the world, say Japan, doing well and other parts of the world doing poorly. And therefore, you would see that there was a different kind of monetary policy being pursued by the central banks. So first of all, I don't know if you agree with that simple observation, but more importantly, do you think that, uh, as I do at least, that this is changing now and that we're actually coming back and we're starting to see more divergence uh, in this world of central bank policies and and what consequences that might have?
0: So I I do agree with that observation. I think that's just the function of both globalization in the real economy, let's say there's more trade, a more integrated economy in terms of things like supply chains, and also open capital accounts. So money flows freely through, throughout the world. And you can see this very obviously in the bond market, for example. Um, there's a lot of research work showing that yields basically co-move together now, since you know, money can easily move elsewhere um in terms of things like the real economy. Um you can again see the close integration when we had tremendous fiscal stimulus in the US. That that also boosted factory conditions in China since you know so much of the demand flowed throughout the world and then again that flows through throughout the supply chains globally. I, I do suspect that, that that is reversing and it's reversing both in the real economy sense and in the monetary sense. So in the real economy sense what appears to be happening is we have a world that is in the incipient stages are becoming more fragmented. And you have an axis that seems to be developing between let's say uh Russia, China, let's Middle East, India, and the rest of the Western world. And that's gonna have real impacts between because For now, for example, commodities and supply chains won't flow as freely, so you will have more divergent economic conditions. Demand shocks in the U.S. may not pass so easily into the rest of the world. And you also seem to have greater divergences in in monetary policy, perhaps in in recognition of this. So, for example, globally, we have... uh, much of the central banking community moving towards tighter accommodative policy, but not the Bank of Japan, and that's causing major major uh, fissures in in the FX markets. You can see the uh, USD basically going parabolic. So um, that seems to be more fragmentation in the in the central banking world as well. So I, I agree. Well, I don't know if that's what you hold, but but it seems, it seems that that is what's happening in the world. We are reversing several decades of uh, convergence and globalization. Yeah.
2: What's on your mind, Jim, this morning?
3: Well, I'd I love to. Uh, you referenced a little bit earlier here, Joseph, the kind of the machine, right? And I'd love to kind of just start at the very beginning of, of painting your picture, you know, as somebody who's been on the inside of, of how that machine actually. Works. I know it's incredibly complicated, and, and I I don't want to you know go through every pipe, if you will. But if you were to kind of uh, you know paint a more toy model, you know one that I have had in my mind, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. That I've kind of discussed a little bit is is really um, how much monetary policy has moved to a more supply side um, tool, right? Um, in the last 40 years, we've seen. Uh, monetary policy, really be something that, that works through the capital channel, right, um, towards corporations, um, helping, you know, support their growth. And and a lot less of that, you know, used to flow via that economically to labor, but via globalization, via technology uh, and whatnot, we see a lot less trickle down, if you will. Um, and so, I really think of it as supply-side economics, essentially, but in a world where that supply-side trickle-down just doesn't really work because of the system anymore, um, and that's driven a lot of inequality because all the money's gone to capital. Um, again, this is my mental model. This is you know I'm just curious to hear your thoughts. Obviously, there is still a demand channel which is primarily through the wealth effect, um, and I think that wealth effect piece has become a, an increasing uh, lever. Right. That may be the only lever on the demand side that the Fed has anymore. So that's my mental model. And those are the two primary things. But I think it's primarily a supply side issue. And then my follow up question, I guess, once you, once we talk about that is given those levers and given that machine, um, that you see, um, you know, will reducing liquidity, um, in this system actually be able to address, uh, the problem of inflation?
0: Oh those are really good questions you know I, I I agree with you jim if you look at if you look at what monetary policy has done in in the uh, let's say the past two decades, so monetary policy basically the way that the Fed enacts it it's it's mostly about interest rates and when you lower rates uh, you do seem to basically as you describe it have a supply side policy and you, the way that you easily see this is, you know, who, who benefits the most from from these low rates? And you can see, for example, the corporations now, they can go tap the bond markets at rates that are barely above treasuries. And what do they do with the money though? It, it doesn't trickle down in terms of more hiring or or more uh, investment in factories or so forth. What it, what it ends up doing is just going to more stock buybacks or maybe more executive pay and things like that. So it, it does seem to be I guess, pushing capital into into industries that really don't need capital anymore. And so it just ends up uh, pushing into uh, asset inflation. And uh, so it it doesn't seem to have have been effective in doing anything other than that. So there probably is some marginal flow through to to the rest of the economy, but, um, you know, it's disproportionate. So uh, unless you have some kind of, I guess values where you just value where inequality things like that don't figure in, and every marginal bit of help to the I guess lower income people helps. Then that could work, but um, but that does cause socially undesirable uh, distributional effects. I agree with your view that the Fed's main tool today seems to be through um, through the wealth effect that. Has to do, I think, with the fact that the wealth effect is kind of the most the thing that can get you the fastest reaction. So, if you were to lower and to raise rates, the the way that monetary policy feeds through the bar system, it's it's not easy. There are many mechanisms. It's not easy to measure them, and um, sometimes they take time. For example, um, looking as to the context we have today, we have a lot of inflation, so the Fed is raising rates what exactly does that do well i mean you can think of it as reducing the uh, raising the opportunity costs of of uh, money so for example maybe if you, if rates are two percent you are less likely to go and buy something sure that that may be the way that it works but you know that takes a long time to filter into to the broader economy so even if we do raise rates to two percent today you know deposit betas, which is how, um, let's say, deposit rates are affected by the policy rate, are very low. So you're, most people are still going to see zero in their checking account. If you put in a money market fund, the money market fund is going to take a large chunk for its fees. So, you know, that that's really not going to slow the economy down I mean, because it doesn't feed through at all. Um, if you think of it as a uh, borrowing or lending channel, um, higher rates, yeah, I could see that. But, you know. Um, that's going to take a while as well because a lot of the borrowing corporations are in fixed rates, and until they reset uh, and they, re- they refinance their debt, it's going to take a while. So the most immediate impact uh, that that Fed policy seems to operate under is is the wealth effect, and that's that's already happening. You can see see that in the very large losses that a fixed income holders have had. Uh, Jim Bianco has a very good graph showing how large losses the have been historic year to date and you can see that in declining equity prices. And that seems to be the primary the fastest and most effective way channel that monetary policy operates under but you know it it, it could be effective but it really does d- depend on the dis- distribution of of those assets in how it feeds into demand. So what the Fed is basically doing in this way is that they're haircutting wealth, or they're taking money out of the system so that there's less demand. Asset prices are unevenly held in the economy, so um, it could decrease demand more for, let's say, a Porsche than, let's say, uh, a Honda. So, <laughs> but, um, but 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 it, it is it is effective, I think, and um, I suspect that we'll see its impacts uh, shortly. But it, it is it is an unconventional channel, um, but uh, one that since the GFC, since the Bernanke Fed, the Fed appears to be more willing to deploy.
3: Yeah, I. I couldn't agree more with with what you just said. I mean, if you think about the last forty some years right since we've had really this this monetary policy um driven economy um we've experienced secular deflation right um and and again, if you think of it again in my mental model, which I think you generally agree with um if the wealth effect is the way you're you're affecting demand yet. Most of the effects um, of, of, in- of increasing monetary policy is going to supply. You know, that supply is ultimately and it's created a technological revolution, in my opinion. It's it's you've funded free money essentially to extend duration. Corporations are looking at 20, 40 year um outcomes now, right? Uh, you know, that was cash flow used to matter, doesn't really matter or hasn't for 40 years. And those are that's, that technology, you know it takes time to develop, but that's deflationary. the globalization that's driven by more money in corporate hands and the pressures to reduce cost um, at the corporate level have all fed through to a very, you know, again, well-documented deflationary environment for the last 40 years, which has just led to more monetary policy. Um, and so it's been a lo- bit of a loop. Despite all that, we are getting what we have gotten a wealth effect, clearly for 40 years. Um, yet, that wealth effect hasn't been enough to counteract, really, that deflationary impulse, I would argue. And so, the question is, you know, if you have these two channels, you have this kind of demand side that's going through the wealth effect, and everything else is really going to capital, and these supply-demand forces are really, you know, for 40 years, they've had to do historic, more kind of uh, pumping of, of markets and supporting the wealth effect just to counteract the deflationary forces, why would we now say that removing that money off the table is somehow going to create a deflationary effect as well, right? Um, I mean, we've had, by pumping money in the system, created a deflationary effect. And now the broad argument, and everybody seems to think that, okay, well, in removing it, it's also going to be deflationary now. And I just, I, it, to me, it's counterintuitive that if we've had a deflationary environment driven by monetary policy, record monetary policy, why removing that record monetary policy would somehow um, counteract uh, the inflation that we're seeing that's really been driven from the fiscal side and uh, external forces now anyway I'd love to hear No your thoughts.
0: I I agree that that so if you think of if you think of one of the components of inflation today is is because there's a negative supply shock then logically in, in the long run you'd want to have more investment to be able to increase production and then finally you could have increased supply right so when i look through the past 20 years i i think well last few decades I think that there are actually some real economy impacts that, that are having bigger imports, bigger impacts on inflation, deflation than simply what the Fed is doing. And one of them, as you noted, is fiscal policy. So, you know, it, what one of the big things that has coincided with this surge in inflation with is a fundamental rethink in how fiscal policy is conducted and for the past few decades we've had an idea where you know maybe we should have a balanced budget or at least some people have and broadly speaking that you know the budget deficit has been growing but you know compared to standards today not that much but in the past couple years that's completely changed and i think of that as more of that rather than anything monetary policy does as more of a driver than inflation going forward so the, the way that I would look at it is, is to see that when you are a sovereign and you're basically conducting fiscal spending and you're financing it by printing debt, what you're really doing is you're basically just financing it by printing money, especially if you're the U.S., because in a sense, treasurers are just money that pays interest. So um, let's say you have $100. You know, it's printed by the government. It's money. If you have a hundred dollars in treasuries, it's also issued by the government, right? Um, it's not something that you can use to pay for dinner at a restaurant. But um, there are some mechanical things in the financial system, like a very deep repo market and a very deep cash market, that make converting that debt into cash really easy. So, in a sense, it's very money-like. And by doing that at an enormous pace, so one trillion, so. We're expected to have a trillion dollar deficit uh, every year now for, for the next 10 years and beyond. And if we have additional spending, like forgiving student loans, it's going to go higher. So that revolutionary shift in how fiscal policy is conducted, I think, is is probably the bigger driver of inflation. And that kind of makes the Fed, I, I think, as you suggest, not very effective because you know the Congress is incentive to interest rates, so the Fed can raise rates and it doesn't really do anything because fiscal spending continues. That's unlike private actors. Public sector actors uh, have no are not sensitive to, to costs. costs. Uh, shouldn't be that way, but in practice it is. So. I, I'm not sure if the Fed is is actually that equipped to deal with uh, with what's coming in the coming years, even if they raise rates or even if they lower rates. Simply because I I don't know if they're they're that big of part of the story. And you also have things that are more fundamental. For example, um, in the past few decades, we had basically an increase in the supply of labor from from globalization and from basically younger generations growing up. But Going forward, what we have is an aging population, and maybe some people find that to be deflationary. But you know, I, I think that you know, if you listen to someone like Charles Goddard, which has a very persuasive argument, what that's basically doing it's reducing the supply of labor into the world, and when you reduce the supply of labor, the price of labor goes higher, and that, of course, is uh, is inflationary. And we're at this inflection point where aggregate speaking overall the global population is aging and so we're going to have reduced labor supply we can know in the u.s for example we already know that baby boomers are retiring just about now so um, these are all secular trends that cannot be changed by monetary policy so uh, it seems that this is something i think that will that's probably not on everyone's radar but will be the big secular trend going forward
3: yeah i think the big change uh, you know in the economy and 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 by extension, how the Federal Reserve uh, Reserve's tools operate is, is, is really globalization. It really is the fact that labor domestically is no longer you know, truly connected to corporate uh, wellness, right, um, at least domestically, right? And because of that, there's been decreased union strength and we, well-documented over the 40, last 40 years, very low uh, real income growth um, here domestically. And so that money that goes to corporations uh, ultimately, you know, fuels the you know, it benefits the shareholders um, and not the people who buy goods uh, and not demand. Um, and that's why I think the system is very different. And I think I think that's important to note because people broadly still are thinking about the system the same way. I mean, there's talk about Volker, for God's sakes, and how this is, you know, Powell's Volker moment, like, the reality is, is Volcker had a very different set of you know, levers to pull. Um, he could dramatically affect uh, labor and unemployment. I mean, if the Fed is tasked with maximum employment and price stability, and the maximum employment part is really just marginally tied to, to monetary policy, you know, it really is this kind of wealth effect that we've talked about, which is uneven to, to individuals and, and really flows to goods in a different way. So, your big point is the one you made is is the the reverse in globalization that's happening and and what that means going forward
0: there is something interesting I would add to to uh, to to your note about fiscal spending and and uh, you know Let's say a potential Volcker-like Fed. So the strange thing about today's economy is that you know the largest borrower is the federal government. So when you raise interest rates, you know, the federal government basically has to borrow more than right. So where did they get the money? They just print it, of course, in the form of treasuries. So you kind of have this dynamic where you could, you know, potentially have a doom loop. Where let's say the Fed raised rates. Let's say they really went Volcker, five, ten, you know, or more percent. Well, who's the biggest borrower? how are they going to pay for it right they're just going to print even more treasuries it's a it's 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 a different structure as you mentioned and that that i think calls for a different set a different set of tools
2: can i throw in a couple of questions on that No, first of all i'm i'm curious uh you know uh, uh i guess it's not that long ago where we had record low yields even in the 10 year and the 30 year Over here in Europe, uh, we saw some countries issuing 100-year bonds, obviously very fortuitous timing, I think, uh, for those who issued them, not for those who bought them. Um, Why didn't the Fed issue a 50-year or 100-year bond at the time, do you think?
0: It would have been genius, right? (laughs) Yeah. So there actually are, there are always talks about this. Um, So the thing is, so the way that this works is that they would, so if the, if the treasury wants to issue, let's say a longer term, like a 50 year, like you suggested, they would go, they would basically uh, uh, shop it around to to the dealer community and see what they think. And the feedback they always get is that it's not going to work. There's not going to be enough liquidity or demand for that. Probably should have floated it in Europe, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right, Exactly
2: now another thing that I, I find very interesting so back i think it's the fall of 2021 so six months ago or something like that There was this senior advisor at the Fed named Jeremy B. Rod. He published a 27-page paper as part of the Fed's finance and economics discussion series. And in the paper, he disputes the idea that people's expectations for future inflation matter much for the level of inflation experienced today. And that's especially important right now, of course, in trying to figure out whether the current inflation surge is temporary or not, even though I think we probably know what where that debate is going to land. But the Rod paper is part of something a little bit bigger. It reflects kind of a broader rethinking of core ideas about how the economy works and how policymakers, especially the central banks, try to manage things. And in the first sentence of his paper, he writes something like, mainstream economics is replete with ideas that everyone knows to be true, but that are actually errant nonsense. And then, to cut a, maybe a long-winded question short, you know, here you have one of the staff economists at the world's most famous uh, and powerful central banks who effectively is saying that his employer has been focusing on the wrong things for the last few decades. I don't know if you're familiar with the paper, or What are your thoughts on, on this? Because I think actually also Jim Bianco at one point a few months ago mentioned, or maybe it was someone else, that kind of turns it kind of sounds like the Fed doesn't really know where inflation comes from.
0: I, I think we already know that the Fed doesn't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I, I would frame that as a broader critique of macroeconomics. So uh, just, just, you know, Exante, how do you know whether or not the experts know anything, right? So you, you the way that you would know is you would put it to the test. So you know, if, if you, I uh, said, Richard Hanania has a, has a good point when he looks at this in, in light of what happened in Afghanistan. You have, in Afghanistan, you had all these people who are, let would say, uh, PhDs and regime change and nation building and so forth. They were there for a long time, unlimited budget, like over a trillion dollars, and everything they built basically disappeared overnight, right? So it's kind mm-hmm. of obvious that these people were frauds, or you know, just were not didn't actually know anything. If you look at this in to take the same. Test and look at macroeconomics. Well, you know, let's say last year, Fed basically unlimited budget, small army of PhD economists, best data in the world. Self private sector doesn't even doesn't even get close to. You. And you know, they're telling you inflation is transitory, everything will be okay. And we kind of know how that turned out to be, right? So, in my view, I don't think macroeconomics is a real field. So, when Jeremy wrote critiques things like that, saying that you know the Fed doesn't really understand inflation, I think he's spot on. You know, so obviously this doesn't work. Why it doesn't work, you can speculate. In, in my own view, just it seems like you're applying the tools of physics to something that basically is not, uh, it's, it's not like a physical science. There's no underlying reality. There's no unchanging truths, right? So you're applying the wrong tools to solve the problem. So you always get answers that are nonsensical. <laughs> we kind of see macroeconomics blow up pretty frequently. So I don't even know why we we bother to listen to what they, what they say. Um, so I think it's a it's a fair critique. And whether or not that, that works, that would change anything, I doubt it. Um, one of the things that I've learned working in these large bureaucratic institutions is that there's no consequence to failure. Uh, you can think of it as uh, Nassim Tlaib's view of they have no skin, skin in the game. Things can go well and things can go not well. But for them, they're completely insulated from the consequences. So for them to say that, you know, this is the wrong way of thinking about something, Honestly, for someone who's very senior in the Fed, it doesn't really matter because, you know, if you get the call wrong, you're still there. If you get the call right, you're still there. So um, uh, I, I don't know if it will prompt any actual real change in policy.
2: No, and maybe it's tied to the fact that uh, I know that this was uh, blown up a little bit on on Twitter today, actually, uh, with this uh, Fox News picture where they showed the lack of experience. Essentially, uh, most members uh, of the committee has never worked outside uh, the Fed, maybe a couple of them outside academia. Although I will say, I think actually the credit has to go to Ben Hunt. I think he's the one who first made that point and and not Fox News. But, uh, but, but, you know, it, it is a little bit striking, right, that you have these powerful people and none of them seem to have worked in in, uh, in the real life, except for, of course, Powell, who made his $100 million plus fortune in uh, private equity, I think. But uh, there we well, are. Well, Nils, if
3: you think about it, the Fed's mandate is very simple. They're not actually solving a big, complicated puzzle as far as their mandate. I-, I think the problem is really their mandate, right? You know, you can point the finger at the people at the Fed, but the whole system is actually the problem. Um, you know, the, the government in the U.S. was made to make passing laws very, very difficult on purpose because they wanted. You know, the founding fathers in the U.S. wanted to avoid the powers of corruption. Right, the the absolute power corrupts absolutely. So, they didn't allow for something like the Federal Reserve because they knew the problems that would cause. They knew that there needed to be crises to actually solve problems. Right. Um, and, but then t- it was a release valve, right? That's democracy. You kind of, the, the problem just gets bad enough. So you solve a problem and then you reset what we've done by creating the federal reserve, which is extra governmental in order to solve this business cycle is essentially remove that, uh, you know, that those minor crises that we actually need, right. To solve problems and to keep things balanced. Um, so the system is really fragile because we've created we're trying to smooth uh, you know with one tool with you know incomplete, uh, you know, an incomplete mandate, um, you know, the business cycle. And guess what? They've done it. they They've really smoothed the business cycle in some ways. but that's created much bigger problems. and that's that's a problem with any solution, right? If you try and oversimplify and you know um, contain it, it, it creates, bigger problems down the road. So you don't get rid of the cycle. You just make it a lot longer and bigger. And I think that's where we are. I don't know. I'd love to hear your thoughts, Joseph.
0: Absolutely. I mean, so I think cycles serve a purpose, right? I mean, just to get at an individual level. Failure is important because when you fail, well, first of all, you learn. And secondly, there are consequences. That, that means that there are consequences for doing poorly and encourages you to do better, right? So, you know, it, it's, it's part of life. It's, it's part of any natural process. When you remove failure, you create epic moral hazard. Things become more and more fragile, right? The system doesn't have any feedback to learn, and so it just gets bigger and bigger until something happens where, where, where it just breaks. So it, it's much better, um, as you mentioned, to have these periodic Issues with, that are minor rather than to have uh, periodic huge issues that, that are, that are blow-ups. And the accountability issue is, is very important as well. So Congress, for example, accountability to elections, present as well. And what's really changed, and I don't think the founding fathers envisioned, was us becoming so financialized such that a central bank... Can be very important and the US central bank can be globally important and yet the people who who work there they you know if you're top brass yes you're you you don't you're not subject to popular mandates top popular elections but you do get appointed and and, uh, you know by congress it's indirect but the people who work there who who do the information that filters to the decision makers those people can never be removed They're, they're there forever so you do have this large body of people who are basically insulated and unaccountable and wielding in extremist amounts of power. That's good sometimes. If you need people to react very quickly, let's say in March 2020, boom, they can roll out and pull out all the stops, do things that Congress can never do uh, so quickly. But you know, if they make mistakes and they, if you know people make mistakes, then there's, there's not much that we can do to stop them either. And I would say that this inflation call from the last year was a very large policy mistake. And there's really no accountability for that. And there's no mechanism for that to be accountable either.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you talk about the stress. You mentioned earlier that um, some of the work. You know, I think we we'll again. I think it was Jim who posted the uh, the chart and uh, about you know what you're seeing in fixed income markets, and this is being the worst start to any year, uh, at least since 1990. And then I think it goes beyond that, because I think Deutsche Bank had a chart out at some point where they showed that since 1788, you'd never had a full month period like this, where suddenly global bonds is down, uh, you know, 11 plus percent at the time, it might be even more now. And of course, we, we, you know, I started out in fixed income, government bond trader back in the 80s. And, you know, clearly, fixed income markets are much bigger than, than equity markets and, and um, they're not designed for these kind of moves really. And so I'm, I'm curious to know whether you think, and of course at the same time we have equities now falling, so the equities and bonds having a negative year at the same time has only happened twice in, in 100 years. This could be the third year if, if we keep going like this. But, but the wider consequences of that, if we think about potentially another banking crisis, Clearly, banks have not done particularly well in the last period of time, even though people thought they would once yields were going to go up again. But, but also, I'm thinking about the pension funds, you know, which would be devastating um, because here, over here in Europe, I mean, some countries are kind of mandating pension funds to be like seventy percent or eighty percent in fixed income, and and it, it's kind of complete crazy. So is that something you've thought about, uh, Joseph, uh, in in terms of what what the wider consequences could be?
0: I I think of, so I don't really worry about things like pension funds or retirement funds because the policy choice, so if they were to fail, that would be really catastrophic. So they won't fail. There's a solution to this. The Government will basically make them whole, paper it over and so forth. So things like these Retirement things or sovereign debt—that—that's never—it's—it's uh, it's never going to be a problem. The problem is always going to be the consequences of the policy actions, and that's going to be inflationary, right? So, if you have, uh, let's say, a pension fund tremendous losses. Well, the government will make it whole. How does the government do that? It, it basically just prints money. That seems to be the well-trodden-out policy path now. We see this happening in the US and in, in student loans, for example. A lot of people seem to have trouble paying it back. Okay, that's fine. We'll forgive it. What does that mean? That means that money that was created never needs to, pay to be paid back again. So the, the end game for, for this is not defaults or deflation or stress. The end game, in my view, is, is, is just inflationary money printing. So... That's basically the consequence of all sovereigns, if you look through history, right? So, um, it's an easy lever for them to pull, and uh, they've shown every willingness to deploy it.
2: I, and I agree with that, and I and I get that. What 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 I've been thinking about, and certainly sharing uh, both on the podcast, but also when I write my updates to to my clients, is that I think we've been lulled in this um, you know period of time where we've kind of lost a little bit of our imagination in terms of how markets can really humble us and and what i worry most about is actually that we're going to get to a period where we're going to have those surprises where we all expect that bailout right but it doesn't show up <laughs> and and or, or something else right that's really my worry is that we 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 are getting the crisis is becoming so big it's been brewing for so many years that we're going to see decisions made that none of us really thought uh, would happen. It's almost like, and I know this is not really that comparable, but it's like if someone said to me a year ago that Facebook would lose 25% of its value overnight, I would have said, "Mm, no, that's not going to happen. But it did happen, right? Uh, or if oil was going to go from minus thirty-seven dollars to one hundred thirty-seven dollars in, in in eighteen months, I would have said, mm, I no, don't think that's going to happen. But it did happen. So I'm I'm very much for this open-mindedness about decisions being made that we just didn't expect, and and I think that's going to create massive amount of volatility in in global markets that we. Obviously good for jim and 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 what he does, but it's going to be challenging for most other people
0: I agree completely there's going to be just crazy policy choices that are made that you would not imagine and I think they've we've already been seeing this for the past mm-hmm. year right so giving everyone shutting everyone down, giving everyone free money um, so but I would think though that if there are crazy policies they they wouldn't err on the side of Hurting markets too much. Um, I, I remember back in 2008, for example, there was a debate in the U.S. Congress about I think it was TARP or some kind of something like that. I, it failed in the in the House Republican uh, Republican House at the time because uh, people were talking about responsible government and so forth. And you know, the market just kind of completely imploded, put the fear of God in everyone, and it passed the next day. So I I, I think there's there's that lever. If if there is uh, an inclination for erratic policy. I, I think it's it's right-tailed in the sense that it's going to be spurred towards things that are increasingly fiscally irresponsible. Things like, for example, maybe forgiving student loans uh, to, to get... Uh, more a bump in the upcoming election and so forth, um, but it is very difficult to predict because not just on the electoral stage, but on the popular voting stage, there are a lot of surprises. Um, if you just look at, for example, what happened in the French election, again, it was well telegraphed that uh, Macron would win. But if you look at if you look at the history, the track record, well, you know, people who are, uh, I guess, less predictable, like Marine Le Pen, been gating consecutively every election. If you look at the demographics, it's actually the young. Who are the young? Mm-hmm. Who are actually more uh, inclined towards something that that is more nationalistic, and so they are gaining in power. And whereas the the older generation who would be more centrist are, are waning in power. So, you have you, you have more unpredictability. I, I definitely agree with that, and I think that's really exciting. It makes things like global macro and people like yourself, Jim, volatility is going to be a huge bull market. <laughs> so,
3: so yeah. So this is now we've entered my my uh, my, my territory. I have a question related to this, actually. So, um, you know, the way I see it, monetary policy, because of, you know, uh, the kind of almost absolute dominance uh, of, of the American system, the dollar, uh, the exorbitant privilege, has maintained um, kind of a, a cage around volatility, right? It has controlled it, because essentially, the uh, infinite liquidity con- you know, contains that, those tails. Um, that could be the case as long as the Federal Reserve has complete dominance, right? Um, as long as, uh, you know, there's there's no cracks in that system. That pressure, obviously, as we've talked about, uh, of, of internal risk has has built over 40-some years, and there seem to be cracks. And I think that's the important point. Now, if that breaks, given the pressure and the leverage and everything in the system, I've talked about this. We live in increasingly leptocritic distribution. There's that word, right? Um, fatter tails because uh, cracks are showing in a system that has had its, like, two sumos going at each other. As long as it's balanced, uh, you're fine. But the second there's there's an imbalance there or a crack in this containing thing of that potential energy, the, the consequences are much bigger and the tails are much fatter. So, I see that that is the case. Now, the c- big question is, is the Fed losing control? Um, and I think this is now my question for you is, um, you know, what causes the Fed to lose control I hear in a lot of your statements uh, that you think the Fed will ultimately be able to come back in, and stimulate, and uh, you know ultimately control the situation. Um, and and I, I would argue, and I want to hear your thoughts. Um, you know, is the exorbitant privilege, which ultimately is what I think engenders the Fed's um, complete power, at risk in any way, especially given the things that are happening now. So let's. I want to. I want to hear your thoughts about. Um, you know, if you, if you don't mind the, uh, you know, is there a risk here to the exorbitant privilege, particularly given the Russia, the the uh, the things that have happened with Russian assets, right, uh, at the Federal Reserve lately? You know, do you, like Zoltan Pozar, believe that that we're entering Bretton Woods three, right? Um, I guess essentially, because that ultimately is what will increase volatility uh, and release kind of that potential energy is is an instability. At the Federal Reserve, in my opinion, what are your thoughts?
0: So I think when it comes to things like rates and FX, the Fed has basically complete control. Um, you know, if it if it comes to rates, if, you know, infinite money printer can buy it and protect it. If it comes to FX, you know, they can go and print it, or they can you know borrow money from someone else to defend it if the dollar gets too weak. Uh, what they what they don't what they don't have power over is just uh, oddly enough inflation a <laughs> real economy stuff because that's stuff that, that that's not financial that can't be printed the the change in, in the dollar status as global currency as you suggested in as Zoltan noted i think that's that's real and that is more of a monetary phenomenon than a real economy phenomenon in my view so it's a monetary phenomenon because when the dollar is the reserve currency Everyone needs the whole dollar. Every software needs the whole dollars to support their companies as they, as they do business. So for, for those of you who don't know, the dollar is the currency of international trade. About half of trade in the world is invoiced in dollars. So it's not just, let's say, the U.S. selling something or buying something from Japan. But if you're a Japanese company buying something from Indonesia or an Asian company buying something from Thailand, it's probably going to be in dollars. So dollars are used everywhere as, as a global currency. And because of that, if you are a foreign sovereign, then you hold uh, dollar assets in reserves to support to support the companies and banks uh, in in your country, and those dollar assets tend to be U.S. Treasuries. So the reserve status basically is is a is a way to keep U.S. interest rates low, you know, because there's tremendous amount for them. Now, what happened in Russia, base I think, put a crack in that system, um, because the way that the way that these sovereign sovereigns manage their foreign reserves is that it's very very important for them that their assets are risk-free they're not really worried about making money but it's very very important for them to not lose money and uh, just on the side the fed actually has a foreign exchange portfolio so it's about 40 billion um it's from back in the day when uh, they intervened to to weaken the dollar so um if you are russia for example you suddenly woke up and you figured out that your safe assets were actually not safe they were just they disappeared now if you are another country let's say china with a very very large amount of dollar exposure then suddenly it becomes an existential risk right so what if someday Maybe you have territorial aspirations that the U.S. doesn't like, or maybe you're just using too much coal and that's not green enough and how people are going to do something. That That's kind of like a sword dangling over you and it's a national security issue. It's an existential threat. So there, there's no way that any sovereign is going to be subjugating themselves to that kind of risk. And so I, I do see them as trying to find a way out. It's not so clear what what the way out would be, but uh, they will find a way. And that ultimately means that there's going to be less uh, people buying treasuries, less of a bid for treasuries, ultimately means higher interest rates. Now that though, as I mentioned before, it's a rate thing. So it's ultimately still within the control of the Fed. If rates are too high, well, Fed will just buy it all. And if dollar is too weak, the Fed can now figure out a way to work with their partners, borrow FX and so forth. But what they can't do, though, is let's say this this manifests itself through higher prices and higher inflation, higher prices in the real economy. So let's say, for example, China gets rid of all their, their treasuries and Fed steps in and just buys it all. Well, you know, that, that's going to create a lot of liquidity in the system, right? So that could manifest itself in inflation, and the Fed can't print things like that. So if the Fed loses control, I think ironically it will be its, in its mandate rather than in the things that we think are its secondary mandates, things like asset prices.
2: By the way, just out of curiosity, something I, I'm not entirely sure of, did Russia lose their FX reserves? Or are they just frozen and they can't get to them? Have they been...
0: I would say it's the same thing. <laughs> well, you <laughs> say it is, the... but
2: if at some point there is a resolution to the conflict, you would imagine that Russia want to bring that part into the resolution, uh, meaning we want our assets back. This is why I think, we I, I don't know, to me it feels like they've been frozen, you can't get to them. It doesn't strike me as they've been taken At this point, I don't know. I could be wrong. No,
0: you're you're exactly right, Neil. They they are frozen. One day, if, you know, let's say the US installs a good friend there to sit in that seat, I'm sure it would be unfrozen. Uh, But that day is probably really, really far into the future, if ever.
3: It's like the difference between debt and cash. It's almost the same thing, right?
0: (laughs) Just as an aside, so the way that the treasuries work, treasuries are basically book entries into a system. So it, it's like a huge ledger if you're into Bitcoin. So ultimately, it's recorded in the New York Fed who owns that treasury, uh, sometimes through different layers. So if the U.S. government wants to get rid of your treasuries, they can do it. If you have a bank account that has dollars, yes, they can get to it. So it's always within their control. You're playing in their system. So um, it's, uh, it's something that they always have power over.
3: I guess the big question is where else, you know, what else is going to be? Uh, where will money go
2: if it's if it's not coming to the dollar, right? I mean, is there an alternative? And can I expand on that actually? Because I wanted to, I wanted to ask, you know, I, it sounds like all three of us have to. We we agree on that. We have to kind of reimagine what safe assets really are. And I'm curious to know from you, Joseph, where what you think is the way for people to maybe just preserve capital i obviously couldn't help notice uh, paul tudor jones on cnbc last week saying that you shouldn't own bonds you shouldn't own stocks for the next uh, many years and 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 the best way if if someone put a gun to his head was to use the simple trend following system which made me smile of course but but (laughs) what are your what are your thoughts on on what safe assets are Uh, and obviously it depends on 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 the investor right but but generally speaking, we've always thought that you know u s treasuries is the safest thing you can get, but who knows
0: yeah that's a really good question I think that's a, that's something that' we're, that people are everyone are racing to to invent to find out um so I think what's changing in the world is that there's more political risk, not just on the sovereign level, but on the individual level as well. If you recall what happened in Canada, you know, you disagree with the government and suddenly you lose your bank accounts, right? So this this political risk is happening everywhere and it's not super clear what actually is safe right now. I think the solutions that one can have on the sovereign level are different from the individual level. Zoltan, for example, suggests a commodity based standard, and that 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 could make sense. So the way that I see that implementing would be, for example, if you're China instead of holding dollars, you recycle your surplus into things like oil, uh, gold, or grains, things that you actually use. So maybe, for example, instead of pigging your your exchange rate a little bit cheaper to to subsidize your exports maybe you subsidize your experts in a different way by offering cheaper commodities to your to your vendors right you maintain your competitive advantage and you also um you also get away from the dollar so maybe that's a possibility i suspect though that uh, it's something that's yet to be found um, for retail i would I'd imagine it'd be just things like real estate gold uh, real estate and jurisdictions that are i think people have more confidence in in the us maybe maybe states that have stronger property rights yeah i i think those are probably what i think of right now but again they're they're not ideal they're not super liquid and they're not easily movable so I think it's a solution that we're still looking for.
2: Yeah, I mean, you touched on a lot of things where, and I I have to admit, I have no idea what your views are on on crypto, but I do want to ask you something because I literally just half an hour before we we went to... uh, to have our conversation today, I saw something that was quite interesting. Um, you know, clearly, uh, I would imagine that the crypto uh, world, um, you know, will be be cheering th- their products as an alternative to dollars and safe haven and to gold. We've heard the, the stories and all of that. And then I see this guy come out with a tweet where he basically says, you know, listen, I bought uh, Ethereum at twenty five cents or something, or seventy five cents. I sold all of it today at twenty five hundred dollars, and the reason why was because he says, now it's not a non-correlated asset anymore. It's all correlated to all the other stuff we have out there. Tech, equities, venture capital. So it's not doing for me what I thought it would do. And I thought that's pretty interesting. If that's because then you could say, is it then the the solution? Maybe it's not because now it's just part of the mainstream correlated basket of assets. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I'm surprised that anyone ever thought it was non-correlated. <laughs>
2: <laughs> We're gonna get some hate tweets. Uh, for, for now.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I so I think that the crypto is actually quite da- quite a dangerous asset because you know the, the way that things are you know unrolling in in the world it, it seems like it's it's going to be regulated and it's going to be. I think in competition with government-issued currencies. Now, this is people say this all the time, but if you if you actually look at what like the BIS, so B, the BIS is the central bankers. They're actually kind of more like an event. They're, they're kind of like a bank, but they're more like an event planning association. They get everyone together. They kind of <laughs> you know, they, they, they talk and stuff like that. It's like a big social party. But their communiques are, are pretty explicit that they think things like Bitcoin are just you know speculative things that are really bad. And they're also pretty open that the world is moving, the central bank community is moving towards consensus that we will have government digital currencies. So uh, I, I imagine that what would happen is the U.S. would simply regulate all these um, private cryptocurrencies and then roll out their own. Um, that is ultimately a political decision. If you hear people like a former governor Quarles, you'd say correctly that there's really no need for crypto, US digital cryptocurrencies, Sorry, It doesn't really serve any purpose, but um, if you have different politics, I think you will you will think differently. So it, it will it will come down to politics and who's in charge, but the trend I think is clear.
3: I think I have an interesting thought here. In a world I would argue that that the extra litigious um, expropriation, I guess, for lack of a word, better word, uh, of, of Russia's assets, in a way, actually, counterintuitively, is, is very bullish um, dollar, very bullish currency. And, and, and I think that's not just in the short term. I think that's more long term. And let me paint a picture here. This is a metaphor. But if you're, uh, you're in, in, in middle school and, and there's a bully, Everybody knows the guy's like pushing people around, whatever. He wasn't around before. People didn't really care about the other big guy who's kind of a fair, more fair guy or whatever in the room. But the second that bully enters and starts pushing people around, that other guy matters a lot. The guy who has, you know, I I think the, the U.S. or whether you want to call them the bully or not the bully, the fact that there's instability now. Things are at risk, right? The value of a currency is essentially the the protection you know the, is that capital protected and that is to outside forces uh, other bullies other big entities a and internally is that person fair right and i think most people are making the oh well this isn't fair argument but i think the reality is the us is is the strongest place both for because of military uh, geographically it's self sufficient there's a million reasons which we all know and and at the end of the day I think the, the instability that's being created here ultimately leads to an appreciation for the values that the dollar provides. Um, and I think that we're seeing that with the dollar. I think the dollar strength here is essentially that. it's You could call flight to quality, but I think it's a bit more complex than that. There are integral things that make the dollar, uh, money in the dollar system safe. Something like crypto, even though it's uh, fair in a sense, right, there is no power to protect it. It can be um, corrupted, or the biggest, you know, entity in the room can, in theory, uh, make it uh, inaccessible, right, um, to to most of the world. So I, I actually, and I think Zihan touched on this. Um, Niles, is I think, you know, the the U.S.'s, um, you know, core strengths, the reason that it it, it is what it is. Um, ultimately make the dollar more powerful more strong during a time of potential bifurcation and risk anyway love to hear your thoughts
0: I, I i agree with you i mean that's definitely what's happening here i mean you see tremendous flow into the dollar and you know it it is it is really i mean just, uh, it's a strong military of course so it has, it's very lucky to be located basically where there's no no uh, you know adversaries around around it so it's definitely a a noesis here in in what's happening here today so it, it is highlighting dollar strength um but it's highlighting dollar strength i think depending on who you are i mean if you are let's say uh part of the inner circle of uh you know President Putin. Then it's 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 not where you're running to. You're running to somewhere else. I I, may, I would think maybe it it's forcing more. of What we're seeing it might be more of a forced by purification. So. If you're on the U.S.'s side, everyone is kind of rushing towards you. And U.S., people who are friends of the U.S. have a lot more money. So you see that very strong, strongly. But if you are not friends with the U.S., and there are many people who are not friends of the U.S., uh, you know, not good friends anyway. Uh, let's say uh, the Middle East or, let's say, South America, those are kind of not not super strong allies, maybe not necessarily always be allies. So you can see that maybe they would have different center of influence so but they are just not as influential they don't have as much money so um, maybe in the future that would change so I I think though that I, I think I think right now it's definitely dominated by flowing to the dollar
2: and I get that and and obviously uh, Peter Sayan uh, was very very convincing and and uh, very strong in his uh, opinion maybe that's also the reason why it's the most downloaded uh, YouTube uh, video we've posted uh, so far congratulations yeah no it's great but but and and I think you know everyone should go and listen to it because there's something that to take away from it at least in terms of okay I should be aware of what's going on from a slightly different light but be that as it may I think you can find a lot of people who basically can find all the reasons why the U.S. will be the dominant, will come out, you know, as you say, uh, Joseph, the geographics uh, that Peter also points out and the military and all of those things. But I don't know if it's just the contrarian inside of me. I'm always a little bit worried when everybody seems to all only be able to paint that picture of why, you know, because if we go back in history... Um, there is not one single system that has, you know, survived. Right? There's always going to be an end point at some point. I don't know when that's going to be, and 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 maybe it's not for a long time. But I, I'm always cautious when people kind of sit down and say, "Yeah, this is the only way it's going to play out." I I don't. I really don't think we can say that. Going back to my earlier point about, you know, we've lost our imagination of what could happen. Um, and, and so I'm open-minded. Maybe it's to the trend follow inside me. I'm open-minded to to things changing course for sure. So I want to just kind of start before we round off with you, uh, Joseph. We've taken a lot of your time already, and we certainly appreciate that. I do want to ask you just a couple of uh, things like, I mean, what are the things, if anything, um, that kind of keeps you up at night when you think about um, what's going on in, in the world right now? And you can be, go as broad as you want, really.
0: So I think what, so there's a couple of things that I, I think that are going on in the world. So in terms of the real economy, I think what's really concerning is that we are moving into a world that's becoming increasingly fractured, not just internationally, but also domestically as well. And this is especially true in the US. So we are entering the world where people kind of don't really share or agree on basic values and basic tenets. And that's internationally. For example, you see, you know, it's very important for for Russia to to have Ukraine to feel safe. And, you know, it's probably very important for China to, to have Taiwan to feel unified as well. And internally in the U.S., you have very con- much contentious issues, you know, what kind of rights people should have and, you know, how, how we should manage the society. The polarization is extreme. And that actually opens the door to tremendous amounts of social disorder. And you already had a taste of that, I think, in the past couple of years where there was mass rioting, there's a lot of destruction done in many cities throughout the U.S. And you kind of don't really see that because a lot of that you could only see maybe in in clips on on YouTube or in Twitter. But, you know, you you have the system where there's the feedback mechanisms, information is, is not working properly. So you have a system that's kind of breaking, but it's not getting the enough information to fix itself. So that further cements its role of, of fracturization. You know, I remember, let's say, I think maybe, oh gosh, maybe 20 years ago, there's a there is a piece in the Wall Street Journal by a Russian professor forecasting that, you know what, one day the US was split apart because, you know, we have in different regions and everyone thought that was just absolutely ridiculous. I think it's a lot less ridiculous today. In fact, I would see that as if you think that things that things eventually go towards the right solution, if you have people who have fundamentally different views of the world, then federalization, you know, that, that's, that's a logical solution to this. So I think that that kind of political disorder is a very real risk going forward. Listen, if you have half the people in the world in, in the U.S. thinking that, you know, election was not legitimate, then, you know, I think it's already over. Um, but that's the political side. The real economy side, though, you also, this fragmentation globally has opened the door to to real distress that we haven't seen in a long time. So we operate in a world that has been globally connected for a long time. So if I buy something, you know, supply chain just work. Energies there, minerals are there, and so forth. But if that breaks down, I think you could see because the system is designed for efficiency, not resilience. You could see uh, tremendous amounts of distress. Uh, prices go very higher. Poor countries will starve. So, there's. You take both of these together. There's there's a real chance of just global disorder, such that you know what happens in the markets just really doesn't matter all that much because um, some some basic things that we take for for granted are being undermined. So. I, I think that the following few years are are going to be tremendously interesting and tremendously eventful and it's a huge volatility bull market for volatility. Uh, hopefully whatever we make still matters though.
2: Yeah, no, I like that answer because I actually think you're you're onto something there with with things that are maybe being underreported and but actually is is a real risk. So I appreciate that. Um anyway, but, yeah.
0: Oh, just one thing. If 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 everything else happens in terms of I think tail risk, I would also watch the treasury market very very closely. Right. Um, so I specialize in in the plumbing of the financial system, and uh, so basically there there's reason that I think that. T- the amount of issuance that's coming up is just historically high. And there's possible that the the, mechan- the underlying plumbing in the system is not wide enough. There's not enough financing and balance sheet to support that. So there could be some discontinuity there in, in going forward, similar to what happened in the repo market a couple of years ago. Um, well, that's a decidedly more minor issue comparing to the bigger political themes. <laughs> no, no,
2: I, I, it, it's great. It's really important. And of course, everyone listening to our conversation today should go and get your, your book, um, you know, Central Banking 101. That it's it's a great one. Final question for me, at least, and that is there are so many things that uh, Jim and I could have asked you and we'd never have enough time with our guests, of course. Um, is there anything that you feel that we missed that you really wanted to uh, share with with us today? Um Any final kind of thoughts, uh, Joseph?
0: No, I think we had a really good discussion. I really appreciate both of you taking the time to speak with me.
2: Thanks for everything you've done. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Anytime. Joseph, this has been a great conversation with so much knowledge shared from your experience inside the Federal Reserve. Thanks so much for doing that today. And by the way, make sure you go and follow, subscribe to Joseph's work, as well as getting his book, Central Banking 101. You can, of course, find the links in the show notes of today's episode. And as you can tell from our conversation, we're living in a truly global macro-driven world, and it is perhaps more important than ever before to stay well-informed. From Jim and me, thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you as we continue our global macro series. In the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other.
1: Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged,